0: Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we are so grateful to be here that we can sit under your word and that you use your word to build the church, that you use your word to challenge and encourage and to sanctify and to motivate and to uh, convict. I don't know what's needed for each individual, but the Holy Spirit does. And so as the word goes forth, I pray that you will work in the way that is most needful to every listening ear. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, in my read through the Bible in a year plan, I'm in Ezekiel right now, which is a really interesting book. You kind of have like this whole revelation that he sees at the beginning with all these wheels and creatures with different eyes. Uh, You have the fact that he has to kind of recline on one side for a long time, then recline on the other. He just all kinds of different things, but there's a a passage in Ezekiel that has always um, kind of arrested me. I'll share it with you. It's Ezekiel 18, 21 through 24. 21 to 23 says this, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right he shall surely live he shall not die none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done he shall for the righteousness he has done he shall live have i any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the lord and not rather that he should turn from his way and live now that's a great passage You think about the death row prisoner who has done all kinds of bad things in his life. But through a prison ministry, he comes to know the Lord. And in the last six months of his life, he is a faithful Christian. And even though he must pay for his crimes, even though he is executed, he will be welcomed into heaven as a righteous man, right? I mean, that's grace right there. That's not the part that bothers me. This next verse is, but when a righteous man, this is verse 24, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed For them he shall die. So theoretically, you could live a righteous life, be a church-going, God-fearing Christian, but if at the end of your life you decide to commit spiritual treachery, whatever that means, you will not be welcomed as a righteous man by the Lord. Recent News has really been troubling when it comes to the church, where you hear of many righteous men and women who serve the Lord in public capacities and public ways, commit spiritual treachery. Some of them have written books and preached sermons that were very helpful to me. And you read this passage, and you have to ask yourself, where are they? Well, if they die right now, they would not be welcomed by a righteous king into a righteous kingdom. Right? And naturally, I mean, I look around, and I think the vast majority of you, by all appearances, are living righteous lives, right? And, and I look at this passage, and I kind of wonder, will I be somebody who commits that kind of spiritual treachery? Is it I, Lord? Right? Isn't that what the disciples all asked? Is it I? One of you will betray me. Is it going to be me? I think every honest and humble Christian will ask themselves that question at some point in time. But at the same time, it's more normal for righteous men and women to stay faithful. I think about some of the recent deaths we had in the broader evangelical sphere. Men like David Pallison, R.C. Sproul, Louise Palau, Elizabeth Elliot, J. R. Packer, all of them righteous men and women. I think about some of our own brothers and sisters here at this church who faced death with bravery and courage and were positively inspirational all the way to the very end. The normal pattern for the Christian is to die faithful. But, you know, dying faithful is not something that just happens to you. It's actually a result of a multitude of decisions that you make in this life. So when you look at that passage in Ezekiel, what we see is this lesson. It does not matter how you start the race. What matters is how you finish. How you finish is what matters. And today we're going to look at one of, I think, the most moving passages of Scripture. It is Paul reflecting on the finality of his fate he's ministered for over 30 years he's traveled 10,000 miles that's a lot in those days in a ship by ship and by horseback and by by walking and now he is about to transition his ministry to Timothy and this would be kind of a scary prospect for Timothy right he won't have paul to kind of give him shelter Right, Paul was always there to, to kind of appeal to, to seek his wisdom. If he got into trouble, Paul might get you out of a jam. He would be the one who'd come in and, and regulate. Everyone seemed to respect Paul. He was a pillar in the community and now he is going to be gone. And in a very eloquent fashion, he, he reflects on his life and as he does so, he shares some of the convictions that he has almost as a final means of imparting how to finish well to Timothy. And this is what he says 2 Timothy 4 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul sees the finish line. He's at the banks of the river, and he sees the celestial city on the other side. He is letting Timothy know that my time has come. And before he leaves, he gives a gift to Timothy. He gives some parting convictions of what it was that motivated him to finish well. And these are, I think, instructive for us. If you want to finish well, that's not something that passively happens to you. It is a decision that you make every single day of your Christian life. And these are three core convictions to keep in mind if you want to finish well. Number one, consecrate your life. Number two, never quit. And number three, look for the reward. It's all on the screen behind me, you note takers. And this is my challenge to you. I don't know where you guys are. Some of you might be weary. Some of you might be going great guns. Some of you might be entertaining some serious sin. Some of you are are just kind of downtrodden. Some of you are overconfident. And hopefully this message will be one that kind of convicts or challenges or encourages you depending on the need. But when it comes to the Christian life, it doesn't matter how you start. That's good news for those of you who have been blowing it. Right? It's like, man, that's the best news. What matters is how you finish. It doesn't really matter what you're running, how you're running right now. What matters is how you run when you cross the finish line. So how do you make sure you finish well? Well, first of all, you need to consecrate your life. 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now previously, Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word, right? Be a preacher Bring the word to bear on every sphere of life. He tells them to be sober minded, to think clearly with sound judgment, to, um, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill your ministry. He's giving a final charge to Timothy and saying, You need to do this because I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to leave this planet. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's basically acknowledging that I'm not getting out of this one, Timothy. I'm not getting out of this one. This is it for me. This is it for me. And he uses this beautiful analogy of the drink offering. Uh, this was a very common Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrifice. Uh, we read of it in Leviticus 23:13, where part of the prescriptions for the sacrifice before the altar of the Lord is, is a drink offering. Like and the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. So the idea is you have this smoldering grain on the altar, and on top of this flaming altar, you dump out wine, right? Red wine. It's no wonder Paul used this analogy, right? He is being poured out. The time of his departure has come. Eventually, red wine will spill out as an offering to the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this whole drink offering motif is this is not the only time he uses it. He uses it also in in Philippians 2.17 where he ministers to the church of Philippi while he's in Rome and he talks about their partnership in the gospel. And, And he says this in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So you see two offerings in this passage. One, Paul is being poured out as a drink offering. And two, he makes a reference to the work and ministry of the Philippians being a, a burnt offering. And this is a reference to a sacri- uh, sacrificial procedure that we see in um, Numbers 15 where the idea is you offer a grain offering and you offer a meat offering. And this is a burnt offering, which means the entire thing is burned to a crisp. Some offerings, you sacrifice it on the altar, but then you get to eat, right? It's a sacrifice with some barbecue in return, right? You partake in it. That would be my kind of offering, but not this one. All the meat, all the grain goes up in flames. It is completely consumed. And when this is happening, you pour out the the drink offering as well. And so what Paul is talking about is the Philippians are actively engaged in offering themselves. And Paul is joining in their offering. They're both consecrated to the Lord for a purpose. And so Paul saw his life as a consecrated life. He is consecrated in life, and he's consecrated in death. He's a drink offering in life, he's a drink offering in death. There's a continuity of consecration. Where anything you offer to the Lord is consecrated, which means it belongs to him. Now, often when we think about consecration, you might think about the term holy. And this is one of the words that I think is uh, most misunderstood in the Christian community. Like when I say you need to be holy, people think, what, holier than thou? We think it's all about behavior. Don't drink, cuss, chew, or go out with girls who do. Or... People think about the monastics, right? To be holy is to be separated from the world. You have to retreat from society and have this this holy, consecrated life. But the fact of the matter is, is that holiness is more than just some sort of spiritual retreat or cleaning up your behavior. For instance, in Titus 2, 14, well, I'll start in Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Right, isn't that interesting? Renouncing sin, renouncing those passions, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, And to purify for himself to consecrate for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, a consecrated life is not one that's just consecrated for their own sake, but consecrated for the Lord's sake to be useful in service to others. And so when we look at what it means to be consecrated, it is to be Christ-like. And what is the defining element of Christlikeness? What is the defining duty of those who are to follow Christ? Well, the night before Jesus was going to go to the cross, he tells the disciples that I've got one job for you. John fifteen twelve through thirteen. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Sounds easy enough. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You don't just love, you love as Jesus loved you. And Jesus loved you by laying down his life for you. You do that one thing, everything else will fall into place. See, holiness is about loving Christ by loving what Christ loves and hating what Christ hates. Christ hates sin. That's why we want to be purified because he hates sin. Sin is what put him on the cross but also loving what Christ loves. Christ loves his church and serving the church and loving the church and sacrificially giving your lives to the church. That's what it means to be consecrated. And this is a very important concept for every single Christian to get. Let's take Johnny. Johnny just became a Christian in college. Grew up in a Christian family, and it shows. There's many things that Johnny needs to work on. For one, he needs to clean up his language. And so he starts to clean up his language. He, he needs to be, learn how to stay off of bad things on the internet, so he gets his filters, he gets accountability, and he works on that. Uh, he needs to learn how to forgive those who have wronged him, and so he works on that. Now, at this point, Johnny's just doing a self-improvement project, right? Self-improvement. But at some point in time, as he's getting holier, part of that journey to holiness is to serve others people to love other people if you go off into some monastic retreat you'll never learn about how you have to trust christ and the holy spirit to truly forgive somebody right a lot of the the working with one another working out differences with one another a lot of people just kind of bring out your sin we just taught a parenting class and we talked about how many people don't know they're angry until they have kids sorry kids It's not your fault, it's in us. It's not you, it's not me. Do you know what I'm saying? I used to think I was an awesome guy until I got married. We're all humbled by relationships. So to be consecrated and involved in people's lives, to carry the burden of ministry, to be consecrated, that is what it means to be set apart for the Lord. The Lord set you apart for a purpose. I mean, Paul had a purpose. When Paul was knocked off his feet on the road to Damascus, Ananias, who was going to be his mentor and sponsor, was told by the Lord to find him, get him, redeem him, welcome him into the community. And he says this, and we read this in Acts 19, 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, go, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument to carry his name. He will suffer for it. He will show the world that this gospel is so important. And Jesus is so worthy I'm willing to suffer to tell people about him. He had a consecrated life. And as we see, he'll have a consecrated death. He says, the time of my departure has come. And that word departure speaks of loosening a ship's moorings. Now, it's a well-known established fact that I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. My whole family is. We watch it every vacation, once a year. We read the books. And one of the great scenes in that is the farewell to Frodo and Gandalf. As they reach a port of departure, And Gandalf leaves to go on the ship that's going to take them to the other side of the ocean, to this other land. And Frodo gets on the ship as well. And then they loosen the moorings and the ship sets sail to the other side. It was his time of departure. It's a picture of death. It's a journey to the other side. And, And that's how Paul is looking at his own death. He's on the ship, the moorings are being loosed. One day, in his dank prison cell, he'll hear the clanking of the keys and the crusty lock will turn and a Roman soldier or two will say, it's time, Paul. they will walk him out of the cell, down the hallway, outside where there will be a stump. Being that he's a Roman citizen, he won't be crucified. He'll be humanely treated in his death. And so he will rest his head on the stump. And the executioner, if he's strong and skillful, will with one downward stroke sever his head. And his body will actually be that drink offering. But on the other side, You'll see the cloud of witnesses. You'll see the Lord. He will be received as holy and righteous. All of that because he never quit, he never quit. He says in verse seven, I have fought the good fight I have finished the race. I have kept the faith." Notice the grammar, have fought, have finished, have kept. What he did in the past, he's doing all the way to the present. Now, each of these have their own nuance to it. He says, I have fought the good fight. Now, that word fight comes from the Greek word, agonitsomai, where we get agony. There's a correlation between fighting and agony. Now, in my uh, brief and highly unsuccessful wrestling career, <laughs> I was 0 and 14, got pinned every time, but I did win my last match, my last match, never forget that. <laughs> but I learned something about fighting in agony during that time. There is something about all of your strength against all of the strength of your opponent for three, two-minute periods if you last that long. You know, it is a continual wrestling and and straining and exertion. And that is exactly what Paul did. He fought the good fight. And and this martial battle imagery is something that he appeals to over and over again, most famously in Ephesians chapter 6. He tells the Ephesian church, starting verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not, like, we do not uh, wrestle, there's a word, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? Who is he fighting? Well, obviously there's the flesh, there's a the world, but at the heart of it, there's the demons, and there's the devil. The slanderer, who was a slanderer from the beginning, he has other names. He goes by Satan, the accuser, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, a roaring lion, the serpent, the adversary, the tempter, the wicked one, Belial, the worthless one, Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Satan is always looking to steal, kill, and destroy. He afflicts Paul with a thorn in his flesh. He hinders him from traveling. He disguises himself as an angel of light to infiltrate the church and try to pull people away. He he attempts to tempt Christians to sin sexually. He tempts Christians to give full vent to their anger. He is always seeking to undermine those who love Christ and His Word. He's opposed to Paul. He's opposed to you. He may not be directly involved in your life, but he probably has a demon doing the same. That is the type of battle that he was fighting all his life. And he fought the good fight, but not by himself. In 2 Timothy 2, 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the power of the gospel, the reality of grace, the reminder that Satan was defeated on the cross, that all those who are in Christ will not be put to shame, fueled his fight. He kept on fighting the good fight. He also never stopped running. I have finished the race. Another one of his favorite analogies. Paul says in Acts 20, 24, when he talks to the Ephesian elders, but I do not account my life of any value as, nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, when you look at Acts twenty twenty four, he talks about I may finish the course and my ministry. Running the race, he kept on ministering to the very end. Now, I will say in my own life, there's kind of a temptation that once I reach 65, I can just retire, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the retirement mindset? We'll leave it to the young, I'm retired now, I put in my time. But Paul didn't see 65 as an end of his ministry. You see, the flesh still had to be defeated. Lost people still needed to be won to the Lord. The church was still under assault. Uh, Christians had to be complete in Christ, right? He did not say he was done until the Lord called him home. I mean, you look at the age of 65, there's nothing magical about it. Many people do their greatest work after 65. Our last two presidents were over 65 years old. And that may not be a good example, but Reagan was over (laughs) 65 years old. Reagan was over 65 years old. There you go. <laughs> Colonel Sanders did not start expanding his restaurant until he was 65. He used Social Security checks to franchise Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I'm grateful for that, by the way. <laughs> you see, and I even think about those uh, gentlemen and you know those couples who use their retirement in the creation conference to, to impact people, right? They used their retirement and their resources because they wanted to help young people understand the authority of the Bible that we could take it at its word, especially when it comes to creation. You're not done until the Lord calls you home. Thirdly, I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Now, there's a little bit of controversy here is Paul talking about keeping his personal faith and his personal trust or is he talking about guarding and keeping the the doctrine of the faith well you kind of have to do both don't you it doesn't matter if you keep the doctrine of the faith if you personally aren't trusting in it fervently and it doesn't really matter if you're trusting in the faith when the faith is skewed you have to do both Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The faith and love, both of them are vitally important. See, in all of this, Paul stood firm, he did not quit. He kept the faith in the midst of all kinds of gut-wrenching challenges, in the midst of betrayals, in the midst of the grind of ministry. And, and frankly, there is a temptation to quit when you're a Christian. If you're honest, you'll feel it. You, you look at the young Christian where everything is new and awesome. Ah, this Bible is just so fresh and meaningful. You, you ever read Psalm 23 before about the Lord is my shepherd? What an amazing passage. And, and there's all these parables. I didn't know Jesus said all this cool stuff. 20 years later, during your Bible reading plan, what am I doing today? Oh, got the parables, got that one. Do I really need to read Psalm 23 again? this church is just so new and exciting. Everyone wants to be my friend. Oh, I just love these people. They're just so wonderful. She's gonna be at woo? Hope she doesn't sit at my table. I just love ministry. You know what? So many people just need to tell the Lord, need to learn about the Lord. Who's going to tell them? I'm going to do it. This just changed my life. It'll change their life too. A hundred rejections later, what's the point? They're all going to reject me anyway. Do you see what I'm saying? The shine wears off. And you have to make a decision, am I going to stick with this or not? When the whole world is telling you, you are making a foolish, wrong decision, will you stick with it? And And that's where you have a firm resolve that you will not quit. And and that is why I would say as a general rule, don't be a quitter. Unless you're smoking, okay? But don't be, you could quit that. (laughs) Quit that. But if your first instinct when something gets hard is to get a change of scenery or to take a break and not just kind of work through it, then you're never going to learn about the value of being steadfast and perseverance and endurance. You don't learn to run a marathon by running a lap and saying, that's it for today. I'll run one more lap. There's a buildup, right? You push yourself beyond what you can go. You, you don't short circuit the plans or the trial or the tribulation that God has for you by just quitting and walking away. You see, Paul never quit. And part of it because he knew ultimately what the payoff would be. I mean, a lot of times when we quit, we think it's not worth it, right? The pain, the exhaustion, I'm just weary, I'm tired. All of this could go away if I quit. Now, with Christianity, Paul understands that you don't quit because there is a great reward, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me... The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. I mean, this is one of his favorite analogies, the Olympic Games. Paul was a sports fan. He had an appreciation for these athletic contests. The athletic contests that would be the kind of the template for our modern Olympics. And when people won an award, they didn't necessarily get a gold, silver, or bronze medal. They received a wreath, some sort of garland that would be placed on their head by the officials who oversaw the event. And in this case, the righteous judge will lay upon the crown of Paul a crown of righteousness. And there's some debate about what this means, but essentially the crown is righteousness. who will receive righteousness on that last day, and not just him. He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, right there, he expands the application of this passage to everybody. This is not just for Paul. The crown of righteousness is not just for Paul. It's for everybody who loves his appearing. Now, that's kind of an interesting um, filter, isn't it? He doesn't say everybody who is born again or everybody who places their faith in Christ, but everybody who loves his appearing. You see, how you feel about the appearing of the Lord, and by that, his sudden imminent return really says a lot about you. Now, I'm going to ask for some theological flexibility as I make this illustration, okay? I know. But let's say the Lord made an announcement that he has trimmed his list of all the days he could return to two dates. He has decided that he'll either come tomorrow or a hundred years from tomorrow. Those are, it's going to be one of those two days. Tomorrow or a hundred years from tomorrow. Now, if you knew that, that there's a 50-50 chance he's going to come tomorrow or a hundred years from tomorrow, would you change the way that you live? Now, if it was only tomorrow, you'd quit your job and just tell the whole world. I understand that. That's why you have the 100-year backup plan, right? But some of you, you really wouldn't change the way you live. You understand. You have longed for the return. You're looking forward to that day. You would welcome it. It's like, great. (sighs) I sure hope he comes tomorrow. Now, some of you are thinking, I hope it's 100 years from tomorrow. Now, why would you say that? Why would you want him to wait 100 years and not come tomorrow? It might be because there's something in your life that you know is not right. That when he comes, you will shrink back in shame. It could be a secret sin, an immoral relationship, a bitter spirit, something that you know has been wrong for a long time that you've never made right. What do you need to do in your life so that you would welcome a return tomorrow? Not shrink back from it. You see, those who look forward to that day long for it because on that day they will see Jesus face to face. On that day they will be vindicated for their faith. They pay their taxes and honestly report their income because on that day it will be revealed. They give faithfully to the church because on that day they will see that there is great reward in heaven. They endure in ministry because on that day it will all be worth it. They will see the Lord face to face and verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which The Lord, the righteous judge, will give to, will award to me on that day. Now, what's interesting is you have a righteous judge, right? And a righteous judge, by definition, always does what's right. And he promises to give all those who long for that day a crown of righteousness. He will declare them righteous. Now, that is difficult to reconcile with the following passage in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. How can a righteous judge give a crown of righteousness to unrighteous people? By the way, is anybody here completely righteous? Raise your hand. I dare you. we We all know it. We all know it. But we read that God does justify the ungodly. He declares ungodly people innocent. Now that would be a travesty of justice in the Hebrew mind. Proverbs 17:15 says, "He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord." If a a thief, a white-collar thief who swindled millions of shareholders of their money comes before a judge and he pays off the judge so that the judge declares him righteous, that's an abomination to the Lord. If somebody who is ungodly, who sinned before God, comes before a righteous judge and he says, don't worry about it, that is an abomination of justice. So that is the quandary. How can a righteous judge give a crown of righteousness to an unrighteous man or woman? Well, we see how in Romans three twenty-one through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we get to the key text. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins two observations. Number one, we are justified by grace as a gift. We don't obligate God. God doesn't obligate us. He freely gives us salvation. He freely gives us grace. Secondly, the ground of our justification is faith in Christ. We read about how through redemption, redemption speaks of uh, liberation from bondage. When he died on the cross, he defeated death, he defeated sin, he defeated Satan. He showed that they have no hold on humanity. And we also see this word propitiation by his blood. That the wrath of God was placed on Jesus Christ so that on the cross our unrighteousness was placed upon him and he can turn around and give us his righteousness. That's exactly the transaction described in 2 Corinthians five twenty-one. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those who convert, who give their lives to Jesus, Jesus in turn gives his righteousness to them, so that on that day when we stand before the Lord, wondering if we are worthy, we know in our hearts we won't be, but Jesus will come forward, the righteous judge, and place the crown of righteousness on your crown saying he is worthy because of my worthiness that is the hope yeah that's exactly what we hope right that's exactly what we hope but that is the reward that we are looking for we live our life in light of that we want to be righteous because righteousness is our destiny we want to slay sin because sin is what put our first love Jesus on the cross We understand that we have been redeemed from sin, so why give ourselves over to it? We look forward to to that because on that day everything will be apparent. We long for His return and longing for His return leads to a life of faith where we are consecrated for His service, we're looking for the reward, and we do not quit. I came across a a fascinating story when I was writing this sermon. An author shared the story of a man named R.U. Darby. Now, Darby's uncle had gold fever. He acquired a plot of land, did some digging and exploration, and he actually found some gold ore deep in the ground. So he covered it up, went back east, recruited his nephew Darby, to help him in the endeavor, and they raised a bunch of capital to buy expensive mining equipment, went back to the same spot. It was there, they found the ore, and they mined enough of it to pay off all their debts. But then suddenly, the gold ran out. There was no more to be found. So they cut their losses, they sold their mining equipment to a junk purchaser. And they went back east. Well, the man who bought the equipment also bought the mine and consulted a mining engineer. And this mining engineer came and concluded that there was another continuation of the vein of gold three feet from where they stopped drilling. And he made gobs of money. Now, what's interesting is they quit without consulting anyone. They didn't get a second opinion. They gave up too quickly. They were close to the great reward. But when things got tough, things got dry, that was it. A couple that's been married for 53 years, Decide they can't take it anymore. They pursue an unbiblical divorce. A man has been struggling with same-sex attraction for 30 years, decides he can't take it anymore and gives into his passion. Theologian has been orthodox during his time in the ministry, but when his unbelieving father dies, He begins to adjust his theology to universalism. I mean, you know the story, right? They were so close, so close, but at the very end, they gave up. You see, it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish. And and this does not mean that you can't die on a bad day. Christians can die on a bad day. But what it does mean is that you do not commit spiritual treachery. You don't turn your back on the Lord or his people and expect that what you did in the past is what merits eternal life. Because it's not about what you did in the past. What matters is a faith, a trust that shows itself In a pursuit not of righteous work so that you can obligate God to save you but a pursuit of Christ because he is the object of your affection and your love see Paul reaped the great reward he finished the race because he was consecrated to the Lord he never quit and he looked for the reward and his enduring lesson for us is that if you want to finish the race you need to remember That it's not how you start the race that matters. It's how you finish. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the example of Paul. He did finish the race. He is in heaven. For all we know, he could be part of our cloud of witnesses. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is flirting with leaving or perhaps... Uh, they've gone wayward for a season or think about coming back. I pray that they will start running again and that collectively we'll help everyone here cross the finish line together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.